Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope to Hear This podcast. Today I have with me Josh Sa. I've known him since he was very young. Um, he's still a young college student, but he started a nonprofit called Insects for Humanity, where he's trying to develop a way to efficiently and sustainably farm insects that can only be found in the wild. So Josh uh, explains to us why he started the nonprofit, his trip to Congo to uh, develop new farming methods. It's, it's all really interesting. So yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope to Hear This podcast. Today I have with me a very special friend. Um, special because I've known you for a very long time. Yeah, for, for several years now, right? For, I want to say close to a decade. Like the first time I met you. Oh. Um, it was before you guys moved back. It was when you were here, like the first time in Georgia. Do you even remember? I have no clue. <laughs> I remember us going to Tanzania together. Yeah, that, that was like not that long ago. Like, like four, five, four or five years yeah, ago. Yeah, four or five years ago. Yeah. But I'm talking about, because that was when like, your family came to Georgia the second time, right? Like moving back to Georgia? Yeah. yeah. But before you were in Georgia, um, when the church we went to was uh, New Soul Baptist Church, not Sugarloaf. Huh. Do you, do you, you were like I a little no, kid. I never remember that. So I you thought. were like a little kid. Rachel was like a baby. Uh. Um, so you might not even remember. But I was in maybe not even college yet when you guys moved here. Yeah. For the second time. No, no, no. The first, oh, the first time. time. You guys, when, I, like, when I first met you and your family. Mm. Yeah. Damn. But anyhow... So, I mean, I've, I've definitely known your dad for a long time. He's a mm -hmm. pastor. He's one of the pastors at our church. Mm -hmm. um, and you are, I don't know if you guys are watching, but he's repping his school. Uh, yeah. Duke, he's a, are you, are you a sophomore now going into sophomore? Sophomore year? right now, yeah. Okay, okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, without further ado, Josh, uh, Josh Sa, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation because... Um, you're doing something that I have like zero idea about mm. <laughs> like all the way from I, I kind of understand because we had that conversation like on Saturday when we ate together mm. um, like why you're doing it but I have no clue like how you got started I have mm. no clue how you're even going about doing what you're doing <laughs> and um, uh, yeah if you could elaborate on even why you're doing it like mm. that would be really enlightening for me but mm. just to give the context to the listeners um, you are a, like you said, a sophomore at Duke, but mm -hmm. you, wait, did you find, did you f found the nonprofit? Mm, yeah. With, um, with another student from Duke. Okay. Um, I started working on, it's called Insects for Humanity, the nonprofit. Insects what? For Humanity. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, got the name from Habitat for Humanity mm -hmm. and, uh, started working on it, uh, summer after my junior year of high school, mm. but it wasn't until I got to Duke that I actually started making some meaningful progress. Oh, so you were a high schooler when exactly, you thought yeah, about yeah. the idea. So I mean, uh, how did you, okay, so Insects for Humanity, mm -hmm. before we even get to what you're, what it is you're doing, like, no, actually, let's get into how you got drawn into it, uh, right? Like, what was the conception of it? Like, you suddenly did you wake up one day and say, hey, I want to do something with Insects for Humanity, or <laughs> like, how did... It was the insect farming itself was just like a random idea. Uh -huh. um, back in high school, I volunteered a ton with like the church, my school, like local law and profits in the community. Mm -hmm. And I thought it'd be a cool idea to sort of start a nonprofit, expand on my service I already did back in mm -hmm. high school. Um, and I had the idea to start a nonprofit. It was like a pet project, nothing mm -hmm. too serious. Mm -hmm. 
Um, back then, I didn't even want to go into like nonprofits. I sort of wanted to be like a, a doctor or epidemiologist or whatnot, going to health. Uh-huh. And uh, it was sort of like a pet, smaller project on the side. Yeah. And um, I didn't know what I was starting the nonprofit about. It just I had no clue. Mm. And I just remember just looking online and looking up. Um, it was innovations in the food industry was the exact thing I looked up on Google just to get ideas to about a nonprofit. Wait, so how did you even land on that? Like, how did you even think about innovative things happening in the food space? It seemed like food security, water security were like key issues around the world. So I thought um, just looking into sort of transportation, food, water, that mm-hmm. seemed sort of like core issues that were you know pressing people around the world today. Yeah. And so um, just looking online, see how we could start a nonprofit in those sectors and I found an article online about insect farming mm. and I never ever heard the idea before mm. and it just seemed really really interesting because there's so many benefits yeah like sustainable and like really accessible for you know the global poor I could go into more details about this mm. later on but mm. there's just so many benefits to insect farming mm. uh, and I never knew about these and I was just like holy cow there's this is it's like an untapped Nonprofit um, that I could just explore, and that's sort of how I got into it. I had no experience with insect farming whatsoever, mm. no experience with like nonprofit management, fundraising, etc. Nothing under my belt. Yeah, I just thought, you know, let's start it and just see where we go. And now we're here today. So, when you started, how, like, what process did you have to go through to start mm-hmm. start it? It was uh, a painstaking one, to say the <laughs> least. Like, I didn't know, like I said, I didn't know anything. So it's just me doing research and sort of learning and failing as I went along. Mm. Um, of course, there's like the paperwork you need to do, like file for incorporation, mm. um, apply for like tax exam status as a nonprofit, mm. um, all that paperwork. Um, that was okay, but I did a lot of things that weren't necessary. Like I would draft these massive business plans, like these 30 page single space documents, <laughs> just like these completely, now today they're like completely useless. Uh. But um, just these really massive business plans and um, fundraising plans, just all these different plans. And I spent like a year just researching, drawing these plans, and nothing came of it. Mm. Like, um, it was just me getting my thoughts out there. Mm. Um, and because I'm really afraid of uncertainty, mm. I used to be. Mm. And so I draft these plans as a way to combat that uncertainty around how I would build this nonprofit. And about, I don't know exactly when, but I remember just a year after I started this, um, it was like senior year, I think, of high school, I had got nothing done, Mm. and it was just really hard on me. Mm. Just the fact that we had, I'd been doing this for a year now, just doing research on how to farm these insects, and that the fact that we had done nothing on the ground Mm. in Africa at all Mm. was just really pressing on me. And I remember just, uh, yeah. (laughs) You were just, you were a high schooler at the time. Exactly, yeah. Wow. But, um, you're very you were a very ambitious young person yeah i mean just uh <laughs> i was fiercely independent and just mm. wanted to go wherever i wanted wanted to go after whatever i wanted uh-uh. to get and so just didn't let the fact that i was a high schooler student just stand in my way yeah but um i guess the disadvantage was i didn't know what the heck i was doing yeah i guess high school no experience mm. and um like i said earlier just spent a year writing these now useless plans <laughs> and i were just senior year of high school i was in the it was a shower thought i I was in the shower i just remember thinking like i need to stop planning so much just Mm. writing these useless plans and just actually do something and so i thought you know screw these plans i'm just going to go in completely blind Uh. and just focus solely on getting things done like 
this very strong bias towards action. Mm. And so that's when I started like, you know, connecting with NGOs in the Congo, mm. being like, hey, I want to set up these experiments to see if we can farm insects mm. and just really getting stuff done. Mm. That was like the point where um, that was a year after I started. Um, wow. So yeah. just, just to circle back to kind of these plans. So what, what, what type of things did you write into these plans? Everything from just how I thought I would farm these insects mm. um, to fundraising to um, working with local communities and training people mm. um, across the continent to farm insects. Mm. And but the the issue was I um, as I went along I would learn more and more about just like you know, nonprofit management farming mm. insects new knowledge that would make my old plans obsolete. Mm. And so um, so. Like you're researching how to farm in insects mm. and like you'll see one method and then you'll kind of write a plan on like mm. how to like train people to do that kind of stuff. But then you'll see a different method and say, oh, this mm. is much better. So this plan that I mm. like put around this first method is useless. So I'm going to get to restart. Was that kind exactly, of like the yeah, cycle? Yeah, that too. Uh, and um, just a lot of, um, I remember like researching online how to start a nonprofit and mm. people were saying, you know, board of directors, you need to set up these, this fundraising apparatus, you need to do this and this and this. Mm. And I was like, holy cow, that's what I need to do. Mm. Um, but just looking back, focusing on like, you know, getting a board of directors, setting up like a sort of fundraising apparatus, mm. that, um, like of course the board, board of directors, like they were super helpful with the feedback they gave me and mm. just the connections I made. But a lot of that sort of setting up the nonprofit mm. in retrospect mm. was useless. Hmm. And so, because it's not like the setting up that counts. It's what you actually do, like the actions you achieve mm. and the steps you take. Mm. And um, like I said earlier, I just decided to just sort of jump into whatever challenge I had to do, just blind, without mm. planning. Like that was my new sort of radical strategy. Mm. And that produced a lot more results than I had in the past year. Wow. So then you f figured out by the end of your, so was it like the end of your senior year in high school when you were like, I want to do more action-based mm. things. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So, what 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 was kind of your first action that you took in in order to kind of get this off the ground? It was partnering with uh, an NGO in the Congo. It's mm. called Cadium. Cadium. Uh, and Cadium. Mm. Um, and basically, just setting up these prototypes mm. because um, in right now the dominant method for um, we were focusing on this this insect called palm weevil larva. Mm -hmm. Um, and the dominant way to farm these larvae is for people to either go out into these forests, find palm trees. Um, like these larvae would infest and grow in palm trees. And so uh, local harvesters would go into the forest, find these palms, mm. cut them down and harvest the larvae inside. Mm. Um, and that method was really uh, labor intensive, unproductive and unsustainable for like local palm populations. Right. Um, and so we were just trying to find a way to farm these larvae mm. in plastic tubs using um, either like uh, palm materials or locally available crops mm. and agricultural byproducts. Mm. And um, like the, the past year, I was just really hammered down on researching how to farm these larvae, mm. but we had no proof that these methods would work. Hmm. Um, and so uh, we, I just launched a partnership with this, with, with this NGO um, to set up these prototypes. And we launched the prototypes, started farming according to the methods I researched. Mm. And back in August of 2020, mm. um, my, my first month at Duke, mm. and they utterly failed. <laughs> like, it was just a complete, 
utter failure. Wait, wait. So you, how did you find this NGO in the first place? Did you just kind of look them up on Google? Or? Yeah, I found. Um, I just looked up NGOs uh, in the Congo, uh. um, and I found this PDF with email addresses for a bunch of different NGOs. And I literally emailed them one by one by one by one, uh. saying like, "Hey, I had this idea to farm." Um, the, this palm weevil larva, uh, would you be interested in partnering with us so we can get some prototypes running? Mm. And um, Cadim was the first NGO that replied, and I was just like, let's go with them and, and see where it ends up. So was it like you asking them, hey, let's try farming it this way. Like this is the materials you need. Mm. This is a setup that you'll need. Can you go ahead and try it to see if it works? Was that the process? Exactly, yeah. And actually, mm. um, Cadim, mm. like these palm weevil larvae are massively popular across the Congo. Mm. Um, and in fact, Cadim had tried to sort of develop a method to farm these larvae mm. since like the, the high labor intensity and unsustainability mm. of the existing methods for harvesting palms. Mm. That was sort of a major production bottleneck. And mm. so there's like a really low supply, but incredibly high demand since like locals just love this larva. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they Cadim had tried in the past to farm these larvae in containers and they had failed. And mm-hmm. so they were already receptive to an idea of, hey, why don't we restart this experiment um, with this new guy from America and see mm. if we can succeed. But lo and behold, it completely failed in August. <laughs> so what does a failure look like? You, you put um, larvae and like these things into a tub and they all died or? So we put the, uh, we, we got some palm material, put it in a plastic tub, uh-huh. um, put some palm weevil adults and waited for about two months, uh-huh. um, see if there'll be any larvae. Uh-huh. And two months later, there were absolutely zero larvae. <laughs> And I was just devastated. I spent like a, a whole year just researching yeah. and researching and researching only for nothing to, literally nothing to come out of it. Yeah. And um, at first I was just, just devastated. All yeah. that work just, yeah. is gone. But um, the cat, like the people from Cadim, they're like, you know, let's not give up. Let's continue mm-hmm. trying. Like there's so much potential if, if we figure out a way to farm these larvae, yeah. this could you know, help impact the lives of so many people across the Congo and West Africa and, and the world. And yeah. so um, we continued working. Yeah. And this summer, uh-huh. uh, I traveled to the Congo to meet with our partners and continue prototyping. Mm-hmm. And we had our sort of breakthrough idea. Oh, yeah. Of, um, we, uh, we, uh, we, instead of using uh, palm materials like wait, we wait, had in is, the past. Are, yeah. Is it safe to share this in public space? I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, it's not really a competition. Oh, okay. Like, um, if other people use our methods, like that's fine. Like, our goal is to, you know, sort of scale and like farming across across Africa and across the world, mm. not to sort of monetize in a right. sense. So, oh yeah, that's right. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. okay. <laughs> but um, the sort of the, the whole winning combination was using, um, it's called cassava. It's just hey, sorry. Really, can can we give one second? I don't know if the listeners can uh, hear, but there's a. And I don't know if you guys know, I live right in front of like a dog hotel. So there's a, <laughs> a ton of barking happening right now. When we tested it, I don't think the mics picked it up, but mm. just in case. I, I don't, because I feel like you're, you're about to get into something very important. <laughs> just want to let it pass a little bit. <clears throat> okay, yeah, please proceed. But yeah, there's this, uh, it's called cassava, and okay. it's this immensely popular staple. Um, it's this vegetable, tubular, tubular vegetable, um, very common across the Congo. And um, one of the common products made from this vegetable is cassava flour. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead of using palm trees, I thought, why don't we grow these larvae inside cassava flour mm. with some other ingredients that I thought could provide sort of the necessary nutrients for these mm. larvae to grow, mm. like palm oil, um, avocados, um, 
and etc and um put together i thought all like this substrate would have all the the uh would meet the nutritional requirements for these larvae to develop mm. um and lo and behold they did mm. um we got uh, a good amount of larvae from wow. from prototyping over the summer uh-huh. um but the the issue is um over in i believe thailand mm. um palm weevil farming uh is sort of on an industrial scale mm-hmm. Uh, much more developed in sort of South Asia, Thailand area, and they ha- they achieve much greater outputs than we did in the summer. Mm. So um, I thought, you know, there has to be a way. If people, if farmers in Thailand can, you know, achieve such high production, mm-hmm. there's got to be a way here in the Congo we can achieve that similar level of production. Mm-hmm. And so um, after the this summer prototypes, we're currently working to sort of relaunch prototypes mm. to see which variables influence sort of the output of palms from substrates mm. and to sort of optimize the model so that you know local farmers who use our method of farming larvae can wow. sort of maximize their output and yeah. their profits. Wow, so you, w- is there a specific reason you chose co- the Congo as mm. a location or? It was uh, primarily, I decided to focus on, well first I decided to focus on palm weevil larvae mm. um, just, just based on and their nutritional benefits, um, how easy they are to farm. Um, and I first looked at countries where palm weevil larvae were commonly consumed, and it was like mm. West Africa. Mm. And then I searched for countries where the climate conditions were favorable for, you know, year-round for farming these larvae. Yeah. And just based on the climate conditions and you know, how popular the insect was, Congo seemed like a pretty good choice. And there seemed to be a very high demand for sort of economic development projects in the mm. Congo. And mm-hmm. so that's why I thought Congo and... Um, Never wow. looked back since. Wow, wow. And, and so I'm just trying to piece the entire story together. It sounds like, tell me if I got anything wrong, mm. you literally started with a desire to do something, right? Like something good. Mm. And, and so you said, let's start an NGO because you were already kind of doing things, you know, with the church, with schools, you know. And then, like, you're thinking about it. Oh, this seems good. You kind of landed on the, the broad topic of innovative foods. Yeah. And then you you landed on insects. Like, oh, this mm. is great. And you landed on a specific insect type food that mm. gets eaten popularly mm. at a location that uh, that there is a need for uh, a more efficient growing process. Right. Mm. And then so you with, with all that in mind, you reached out to a nonprofit and then you had done research to see mm. um, what methods of farming might be. I get, I'm guessing cost effective, mm-hmm. right? Like it has to be cheap enough that local farmers can do it, mm-hmm. um, but it needs to provide enough output that it's, it's profitable, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Wow. And then you decided, did you decide to go to the Congo because there weren't enough results happening? Or was that, did you go when there were results happening? Like When there weren't results happening. Oh, and, so um, you yeah. said this isn't, going well enough so i need to mm-hmm. go there myself exactly yeah. oh wow it was just um uh. sort of let's go there ourselves see uh. what we can do about it and see if we can you know, change the uh the repeated failures we've been seeing uh. over and over so so like how long were you there i was there i was planning to stay for about two months uh-huh. i was there for about a month and a half because uh-huh. i got malaria and had to come home <laughs> oh, yeah. uh. Uh, okay <laughs> well before, actually can you tell us that story now like how did like what happened oh what yeah happened? um so a few it was a few weeks after I first touched down in Kinshasa. Mm-hmm. I went on sort of a solo trip to a rainforest because where I was staying, uh. it's so, 
it's not a very hilly area, but uh-huh. at the base of the hill are these really dense forests, like uh-huh. pretty much rainforests. Uh-huh. And I was really curious about these forests. It's like, you know, they're nowhere here in like Suwannee, Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. And so I decided to, you know, no one would come with me. So I just went by myself with like a... Wait, but the Congo trip, was that you by yourself? Or yeah, the you entire trip was... I was the only one from the States. Okay. I was visiting um, our colleagues, our partners in the Congo. Okay, okay. So I was staying with them, but, uh-huh. you know, they're all working on, on their own projects. And right, so right. when I was free, I decided to, uh, why not explore the local area a bit, uh-huh. the rainforest in particular. Uh-huh. And so I got a uh, pack some first aid supplies, a few protein bars from home, and a, uh-huh. a Swiss army knife, uh-huh. and just literally went out into the rainforest. Uh-huh. And um, it was just super cool, meeting a bunch of super cool people. Mm-hmm. And my French isn't the best. And uh-huh. so, but I was able to like, you know, sort of navigate people who I, I came across in the, in the forest. And I remember just thinking, man, there's so many bugs mm-hmm. in this forest, like mm-hmm. up in the hilly area. Um, it was in the summer when I went, like the Congo's equivalent of winter. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot less mosquitoes than I expected mm-hmm. up in our hilly area. Mm-hmm. But down in the dense forests, there were a ton of mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't think much about it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, about like a week later or so, I remember coming. It was a really tough day. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of physical labor, like transporting materials for our um, larva prototypes. Yeah. And then I just come home and crash in bed. Mm. And I remember just feeling really, really cold all over my body. And then I start thinking, you know, maybe I'm just tired, whatever. It'll, just, it'll go in a few hours after I eat some, like, Tylenol or whatever. Mm. Uh, then, then it go away in a few hours. Mm. And that's when I realized it's something more serious. <laughs> oh, gosh. And, uh. um, I mean, at first it was kind of... I was. It was kind of funny at yeah. first, just just this American kid coming to Congo and getting malaria. Uh-huh. I look at this dude, but uh-huh. um, and I remember the first night I knew I had malaria. Mm-hmm. I didn't think much about it. I was just looking at memes and just like laughing at myself for getting malaria. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next few days is when the symptoms really started to go south. Yeah, um, it would fluctuate between like really intense chills mm-hmm. or really hot fevers mm-hmm. and like every few hours so i wouldn't be able to sleep for more than a few hours at night because i'd always wake up either freezing cold or like freezing cold to the point where no amount of clothes could keep me warm yeah or to the point where i was so hot that i could like strip naked and it'd still be so hot Mm. um and just fevers and the chills i lost all my appetite Mm. i probably wouldn't have eaten anything if i didn't force myself to to eat some protein the the same protein bars i took to the forest um just really um really fatigued i couldn't walk more than like 10 feet without like collapsing mm. and uh was there a hospital like in that area or there was a hospital mm. um but that's sort of like my last resort if mm. things got out of hand mm-hmm. um which they kind of did yeah. <laughs> I, I developed um like i knew it, things got out of hand when i started developing breathing issues oh gosh yeah, yeah and i uh, couldn't really breathe too well oh. and that's when my colleagues were like okay this time for a hospital now yeah and so we um my my Pretty much the only way to get around in the area I was like a rural small community mm. was by motorcycle mm. across, you know, some mountainous terrain, sandy roads, dirt roads, like really treacherous terrain. Mm. And I remember just riding to the hospital. It's like a 30 minute motorcycle ride. I was on the back with like two other people in the front. Mm. Um, just super bumpy road. Yeah. Every single bump would just like send stabbing pains all across yeah, my lungs oh my and just goodness, killed yeah. me. And then um, arriving at the hospital, it's like this two three room little shack no <laughs> running water no uh, electricity like their their sink was outside of the hospital there was this this tub of water mm. um and you would turn this little plastic faucet to mm. get a little stream of water and that's how you wash your hands and whatnot yeah 
and I were thinking like, okay, we, you know, we should just trust the people here. You know, they they know what they're doing. Yeah. So I I wasn't too worried. Yeah. And then um, going to the doctor, he's just like this really big, really imposing man, mm. and he starts getting frustrated at my my total my really weak French. Like I knew a little bit of French from like when I took French classes at Duke. Yeah. I was just still like very elementary level. Yeah. And him just asking me like my symptoms, my medical history, etc., and not really being able to communicate, that mm. was like sort of getting on his nerves. Mm. And he gets to the last question, um, if I had any allergies. Mm. And I said, you know, the usual, like the dust, pollen, etc. Mm. And mm. at the end, I mentioned I had an allergy to penicillin. Mm. And Dude, um, you have penicillin allergy? Yeah, penicillin oh, wow, allergy. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the doctor, he seemed to, to nod and, and sort of call for a nurse i don't know if you understood but i was assuming he did since you know mm. he called for the nurse and he, uh, the nurse brought over this large vial of mm. like this wil- milky white substance uh-huh. along with the ivy needle uh-huh. and as soon as i see that needle i like i start freaking out i'm yeah. like okay i did not expect to get some sort of injection yeah uh, when i came to the hospital i thought you know i would get pills and be sent home yeah um whatnot like malaria pills that was not the case uh-huh. um and then i that's when i start kind of freaking out a little bit more yeah and being like you know is this needle clean mm. I, I let my paranoia get the best of me i'm mm. like is this needle clean am i gonna be safe mm. you know like, you can't help but think those thoughts and like when you're in a shack that's a hospital yeah with no you know, running water no electricity yeah and you know the doctor assures me it's gonna be fine so i'm like okay let's do it mm. and the nurse injects uh, the entire vial inside my arm mm. and not even a few seconds later i feel my throat just start clenching up uh-huh. like, I, and I start panicking. I'm like freaking out. I'm yeah. like, okay, I can, uh, my breathing is just like restricted right now. I feel my throat just closing in every second uh. and I'm like screaming at the doctor, the nurse and they're just as confused as I am. Yeah. Like they don't know what to do. They're just standing there like uh. shell-shocked. Yeah. And so in like a sense of desperation, I just throw myself on a hospital bed mm. and just hope for the best. Yeah. And, I remember like closing my eyes and just as my eyes, as I still feel my throat sort of closing in, yeah, just thinking like, am I going to die on this bed in the Congo? Oh. And just having to prepare myself mentally for the fact that if I close my eyes, there's a very real chance that I might not open them again. Oh. And um, just, I, that was the scariest I've ever been in my life. Yeah. I, I've done scary things like climb construction cranes and explore abandoned prisons and all this oh, yeah i thought weird. we can talk about that later. yeah <laughs> i thought that too but okay all yeah. this all this you know pretty scary stuff yeah. but i've never been that scared in my entire life just like so helpless on uh. a bed not being able to do anything uh. um but like in the i think it was a few minutes um felt a lot longer than that mm. but um my, I, f- I feel my my throat sort of loosening up again mm. i'm still really hard to breathe i have to like really put some 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 force into breathing mm. But I can breathe again, mm. and like I can still breathe, and I was just, you know, really, really glad that I didn't <laughs> die on that bed. And um, and the funny thing was like after like during my whole allergic reaction, nobody did anything. Mm. They were just like standing around. Wait, wait. So did they inject you with? Was it penicillin? Apparently, it was ampicillin. Um, I remember getting a list of of uh, chemicals in that mm-hmm. in that vial, uh-huh. and one of them was ampicillin. Uh-huh. And I think that's where the allergic reaction came from. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Oh. And the the really <laughs> sad thing too is um they tried to give me a second injection after my first one, mm. and this time I was like okay let's not get any more injections. <laughs> and I asked for like a list of chemicals in that second vial, uh. um and I forgot which one it was, but one of the chemicals 
for the second vial that they tried to inject inside me uh-huh. was banned in the EU for oh. I think it was banned or restricted or something like that banned oh. or because of all the potential side effects it could cause and wait like, so like as you're getting these like li- the list of chemicals are you like looking it up on your phone to see if it's yeah I actually had 2G signal throughout oh, the Congo okay, um, okay, thanks okay. to my my cell phone plan uh-huh. and so um, that was uh, that was helpful okay but, okay um, wow I was just like wow uh, so you declined the second yeah, yeah I declined uh, the second one uh-huh. um, and the funny thing was like after the whole uh, whole fiasco mm. not even a few hours later we um, I went back with me and my colleagues we went back to where we were working and we were just like really lighthearted about it like it was just like <laughs> look at this American guy not being able to take his injections like, or oh, something. he almost died you yeah know, like, <laughs> it was like whatever but like oh, I, and um, my uh-huh. favorite picture of all time uh-huh. Um, on my on my cell phone is like a selfie my colleague took of me and my other colleague and we were like all really jubilant really happy just uh-huh. all smiles and uh-huh. it was just like a few hours before I was on a hospital <laughs> bed not knowing if I was gonna die like die on that bed wow. just a few hours ago wow. but, and so how is that why like did you leave like the day after or like what happened like why was your trip cut short I couldn't leave right after uh-huh. I still had all the symptoms of malaria that oh, probably would have barred me from traveling, right, like flying right. back. Uh-huh. So I waited about a, f- a week or so, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, but the, the funny thing is, the injections actually worked. Um, mm. And I don't know if it's because like the panic or just like the injections or whatnot. Mm. But the symptoms started getting better slowly mm. but surely. Mm. And in a week or two, I was just fine. Only had a little bit of raspiness when I when I took a breath, mm. but I was pretty much good to go and. Yeah. Wow, and then you just you changed your flight as soon as you could to, to get back. Yeah, and um, arranged for um, our, my colleagues to sort of finish the work I was doing, mm-hmm. and then that's when I flew back home. Yeah, and then did you immediately go to a hospital or like? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the I went to uh, urgent care, mm-hmm. and the doctors were like, "Nothing wrong with your lungs or whatever," mm-hmm. and wow. I was fine. Yeah, that's great. Wow. Wait, and and so just so we kind of have a better understanding, like your mm. colleagues, they're are they like Congo natives? Yeah, they're Congo natives. And, and did they speak English or how did you guys communicate? So, one of them spoke English, but it wasn't the best. Mm-hmm. Um, hardly anyone in the area spoke English, mm. and my French. They spoke French though, mm-hmm. and my French was it was passable, but mm. not the best. Mm. And so when I couldn't speak French, I would use Google Translate on my phone. Mm. <laughs> and that's how we communicate. But um, all the times it was like unreliable, the connection was weak. Yeah. And so it was, it was difficult, but not impossible. And a lot wow. of times I just communicate with my really basic French plus facial expressions, plus mm. hand gestures. Wow. And I was like, yeah. And now uh, I'm going back in, back this summer, but I'll learn a lot more French before I go. Yeah. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully this kind of thing won't happen again. Yeah, and you should uh, take some precautions against mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, I I couldn't take enough anti-malarial pills. Um, mm. Like my insurance company wouldn't provide me with a full like the oh two gosh. months course of malarial pills. Right. So my strategy was, and I know it's wrong now, <laughs> um, but I. So you're supposed to take a one pill every day, uh-huh. and so I took one pill every two days. So sort of spread out the supply. <laughs> okay, and that's not something I'd recommend. Okay. Oh, um, obviously. From exactly. The- <laughs> <laughs> from personal experience. Yeah, from from the results of it. Yeah, event. but oh. um, I thought it worked, but it clearly did not. Uh, wow, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> did Did you ever go on the the Haiti mission trips that we used to go on at our church? 
No, my dad did. I remember one of those. I think, yeah, I think I was there with your dad. But Mm -hmm. yeah, there's like a regiment of like anti-malarial pills that you have to take Mm -hmm. for like certain amount of like days or whatever before you go. So Mm -hmm. all, but then you kind of like halved it. Yeah, exactly. You didn't do the full dosage. Wow. Oh, so your your colleagues, they're native Congo. What's the term for Congo people? Congolese. Congolese. Okay, Mm -hmm. Congolese people. And so you're the like literally the only american there mm-hmm. at the time and you're just kind of through sheer force of will like communicating <laughs> with these people to figure um, out how to like make it better like so were they like already funded or like did you have to provide funding for like the experiments that you were doing we or um in sex or humanity we had to provide the funding mm-hmm. um but we we had funding though like mm-hmm. i had several scholarships in the past mm-hmm. put those towards the nonprofit, mm-hmm. and also duke mm-hmm. um provided a lot of funding as well awesome like, um, wow. yeah they provided like over the summer ten thousand dollars for wow. for our work and wow. i was just like yeah, absolutely crazy and yeah. um, we use that to sort of fund like travel and yeah. prototypes and whatnot like the prototypes themselves are like crazy cheap uh-huh. um we could start um like let's say farming with 200 substrates like mm-hmm. a massive scale mm-hmm. um would cost like what five hundred dollars for all the materials and oh wow um it's other prototypes for like other nonprofit projects would be like thousands or tens of thousands of dollars but like insect farming is a very low cost mm. endeavor like that's why it's so useful for um like uh local farmers in the congo and across west africa like so very low cost to get mm. involved with insect farming mm. so like I, I know you mentioned this a little bit but let's get into the details of it well what mm. are the benefits mm. of insects because obviously we're talking about farming these insects for eating mm. right so like they're I'm guessing nu- nutritional value, things mm. like that. So, like, do you? What are some of the? Well, let's put it this way: What is the advantage of eating bugs over, let's say, like beef or pork? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, first, on a very macro level scale, mm. insects are a lot more sustainable than larger livestock like cattle or pigs or etc. Mm. Um, to farm equivalent amount of insects as compared to say beef Mm. you need a lot less land a lot less water a Mm. lot less feed Mm. and so that reduced resource demand Mm. translates to very real ecological benefits for locals like say um, if you're farming cattle you need like grazing land and Mm. you know grazing land sort of facilitates soil erosion deforestation etc and in, a, in areas where you know, the vast majority of people are farmers who depend on the quality of the local environment for mm. their economic livelihoods, mm. um, like the sort of economic or ecological decline that um, might come about from like this resource demand you see with larger livestock, yeah. it could spell doom for like local uh, economic livelihood. Right, right. And so um, like not only sustainable, but they're also very nutritional. Mm. Um, they, uh, like insects, they sort of pack the, the fibers, uh, the proteins, the healthy fats mm. necessary, necessary for human health, um, mm. nutrients that you know, larger livestock might lack. Mm. And um, but on a more micro scale though, like it w- you know, the sustainability, sort of the health benefits wouldn't really matter if people don't appreciate the insects and want to consume them. Mm. And so, like, um, just from my time in the Congo and from, like, surveys we've done in local communities, mm. um, like, locals, uh, especially in the communities where we're working, they see these insects. Um, they consume the insects not cause, not only because of, like, the sort of ecological health benefits, but because of their taste as well. Mm. Um, like, I've had, like, countless number of people when I was in the Congo tell me, like, this larva, like, some of, some of their most favorite, favorite food 
because like the t- it tastes so great mm. and um it also has medicinal properties as well like um locals really? use like the larva to help cure uh, pneumonia in children or infertility in men oh interesting exactly wow. yeah wow. and um i haven't looked too deeply into like the sort of the scientific background of like the medicinal properties of these palmwheel larvae but mm. just across the just in the communities and across west africa it seems like there's a lot more to these larvae than just you know the sustainability and nutritional aspect. Of course, they're very important, and yeah. you know they play a large role in you know, why these people consume the larva. But mm. there's like so much more, like locally, mm. that sort of um, sort of drive the reason why people consume these larvae. Mm. Have you yourself tried one of these yet? Actually, um, I've tried a lot of different insect species, like uh-huh. crickets, grasshoppers, silkworms, um, and whatnot. But when I was in the Congo, I could never get my hands on these larvae because they're so oh, popular. Wow. Um, like I mentioned earlier, like that there's a, a massive demand for these mm. larvae, but not enough supply. And so like whenever larvae hit the market, yeah. they sell out. So is it like a delicacy? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a delicacy. It's like oh, wow. really popular. Um, mm. Not only in the communities where I work in, in, in the Congo, but across, across West Africa, and, mm. um, like different types of insects. Like I remember just reading about like how it's like two billion or so people, like a large fraction of the world's population, consume insects regularly. Like mm. they're delicacies across the world. Like in yeah. America, we see them as like you know gross yeah. and dirty and just disgusting. But across yeah. the world, they're completely different. Like as as sort of a delicacy, as a um, superfood almost. Mm. Like it's just so many benefits packed into like such a small insect. Yeah, I remember reading an article several years ago about how um, the bang for your buck in terms of eating insects is mm. so much better than like beef and pork mm. especially because of all the like unhealthy fats that like meat red meats have mm. whereas like the bugs don't really have that mm. and um yeah just the way like you were talking about all the sustainability and all that kind of stuff like i remember the article saying like if you were to design humanity right now and kind of knowing what we know now develop our cultures to, like our food culture around that mm. like bugs would be at the top of the list like and pork and beef would not be like they would be considered inefficient food sources mm. so wow exactly yeah. yeah insects are pretty much the wave of the future like it's mm. only like the um like america and europe that's sort of lagging behind in terms of like catching up on this sort of super like superfood that is insects yeah I know even in Korea where we're from, like they yeah, have, I, I don't know, is it bundigi? Like yeah. that's that's silkworm, right? I believe so. Yeah. I remember just every time I talk about it with like a Korean person, they uh-huh. always mention like bundigi. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never had bundigi before. Like yeah. maybe next time I go, yeah, I, um, I could try some. It's uh, I, I remember all my uncles always like saying this like really good, but never, me never having the nerve to eat. It. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what's what's the end goal of your NGO? Like, mm. is there a like, oh, once we've accomplished this, like our, you know, goal, our purpose is complete. Is there anything like that? I don't think there is an end goal. Mm. It's pretty much just scaling insect farming as much as possible. Mm. Like right now, um, like the model we have now, in the, especially in the Congo, um, there are other NGOs trying to farm insects I'm like in plastic containers Mm. but it seems like they're very localized or they haven't achieved a very large scale across a country Mm. or across a region Mm -hmm. and so what we're trying to do is find a method to farm these larvae that's very cheap and accessible for local farmers Mm. so you can scale it broadly as possible like Mm. not only across the Congo not not only across Africa but across the entire world Mm. and not only these 
these larvae, but other insect species too. Because like these insects, you know, like I said, they're they're the wave of the future. Mm. And but right now, like not even just with these larvae, the current method of harvesting them is from the wild. Not only is that unsustainable for local insect populations, it's very unproductive yeah. and very labor intensive. And it's like very luck based. You kind of have to go out and exactly, hope. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and just if we can farm these larvae in a more controlled environment, mm. more sustainably, mm. more cheaply, more with less labor, mm. you know, we could pretty much revolutionize the entire insect uh, insect market across the world. Like that's what uh, my co-founder and I and my team believe in. So would you say that um, improving the scalability of farming these larvae would also help with food shortages that are kind of rampant around the world? I think it definitely help. Mm. Um, but the issue with food shortages mm. isn't just like the availability of food. Mm. It's a lot of you know, economic environmental political factors that sort of play into right. why people don't have food yeah yeah um but i think since insect farming is so accessible mm. you, know, you don't need a lot of upfront cost to get involved mm. um i think it could definitely play a role in mm. helping alleviate food insecurity worldwide yeah oh that's great so you mentioned um how you do this with the co-founder you, you said it was wait did you you started insects for humanity yourself or mm. was it with a partner so officially, I started by myself, uh-huh. um, and then I recruited a team of like board of directors, advisory board mm-hmm. um, from like the local Atlanta area, who've been mm-hmm. like super helpful in just providing feedback and whatnot and and so, mentoring. But so with the board, are mm-hmm. they like? How did you go about finding the the people for the board? LinkedIn. I oh, remember I posted wow. a job description on LinkedIn uh-huh. for a board um, uh-huh. a director's position for a local nonprofit, uh-huh. and so many people responded. And wow. like not just you know some random people across you know this across the road, uh-huh. but like people who are like just incredibly accomplished in yeah. their fields. Yeah, uh, I remember just being blown away by like how accomplished, how accomplished these people were. Yeah, and just so blown away by like the fact that they would apply to be on a board of a nonprofit started by an absolutely clueless <laughs> high school kid. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, now my board and I like we're very close, and they they've been like invaluable mentors to mm. me and and my journey as like I'd grow the nonprofit too. Yeah. And after I entered Duke, mm. um, I was part of, it's called a focus program, mm-hmm. where you know, first year students in their first semester at Duke, they mm-hmm. can sort of explore a interdisciplinary topic in more detail in like a seminar based group. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone in that program, I was in, um, everyone in that group lives together pretty mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. And I, there was another student in that program I met. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Gabrielle. Mm-hmm. And we lived, because we lived in the same dorm, we got, we got pretty close. Mm-hmm. And so over the winter, like, she sort of had the same passions for, like, you know, um, service and, you know, helping others. Mm-hmm. And um, over, it was winter after my first year at Duke, winter mm-hmm. of 2020, mm-hmm. um, we started working together on Insects for Humanity. Mm-hmm. And just been going forward since then. Wow. Wow, so it's two people kind of on the ground doing the work, um, and you have a board. How many people on the board? Five board members, uh-huh. and then three advisory board members. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. And so there are they like people? I'm imagining like people like middle aged people in like mm-hmm. careers and all that. Is exactly, that, yeah, that's the wow, case. That's, yeah. So LinkedIn, huh? Yeah, you just reach out and wow. That's, I, I just posted the job application on LinkedIn uh-huh. like all these people applied I was just like blown away I was like holy cow you know like for anyone listening like if you wanted to do something like this but were fearful and didn't know what to do man just this is like such good advice just go for it exactly yeah like, <laughs> yeah, like, like I learned all that all those months ago uh, and so just planning or like being afraid of the uncertainty is just 
yeah. jump in blindly and just hope things will work out. Yeah. Like that was my strategy. And, so, but yeah. I do think though, it's nice to have a kind of the structure that you have, right? So like you had the understanding to know that you needed mm-hmm. to set up a, is it that you, so are nonprofits incorporated? Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, they're incorporated. You have to do your incorporation. You have to like uh, file for tax exempt mm-hmm. nonprofit status, all that. Mm-hmm. So like those things that you, you, you should do. And the, the fact that you knew to, uh, recruit a board of directors that's also very helpful right because mm. some people might not even know that step so, that is true so so is there anything like structurally mm. that might be obvious to you but um uh that is i guess that's true maybe mm. not jump in completely uh-huh. blind uh-huh. but with an idea that using the basic knowledge mm. like not an in-depth knowledge of like how to recruit how to manage a board how mm. to do all this paperwork just like a very high level knowledge right and just use that as your springboard mm. to sort of fuel action because mm. um like the worst thing that i mean i'm you know i'm just 19 year old may sort of kid who st- still doesn't know much in life <laughs> but um i think the worst thing any whether it's nonprofit for profit any entrepreneur can can find themselves in is indecision mm. and the fear of the uncertainty that's sort of paralyzing them to indecision yeah um like you just need to pick a path and just run with it yeah focus on action rather than than research mm. like research is so helpful but right right so it sounds like you you for sure knew what you wanted to do mm-hmm. you knew that you needed to get all the forms and filled out to become a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. you also knew that you needed to have um people in the board yeah you mm-hmm. needed to have board members did you know specifically that you wanted five board members and three advisory board members or was that just something you landed on just landed on that's okay. how it worked out okay okay so you just you didn't know the number but you knew that you needed them mm-hmm. and also you, you knew to uh, because it was something you wanted to do that's not in atlanta you, you knew that you wanted to partner up with the ngo mm-hmm. uh, kind of on the spot on the grounds of, of congo right mm-hmm. you know that's with that basic kind of framework mm-hmm. you did the research to figure out like what possible prototypes you could create to produce a new method of farming mm. um and just through networking you actually found your 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 partner yeah Is that right mm. yeah see like it doesn't take much i, I think mm. a lot of people get like you were saying crippled with like fear of not knowing mm. um but it doesn't take super in-depth knowledge of this stuff to kind of just go out and get it done mm. yeah. exactly and wow. still like i would say I'm definitely not an expert in insect farming. Mm. Like the sort of breakthrough we had mm. was pretty much purely a guess. Mm. Like it still makes me laugh to just realize <laughs> I was just sitting there in our sort of Congolese, you know, little area where I was staying and just thinking, what stuff could I combine mm. to you know, actually produce larvae? And it was like a complete guess, but mm. it ended up working. Yeah. And just, um, yeah, you don't really need the hyper technical, hyper professional background just like a determination to, to see things through, like yeah. come hell or high water, like yeah. you'll get things done. Wow, that's awesome. So so for people listening who, who want to help, um, like what, let's say, uh, we're, not, we're not talking about like experts, right? We're just mm-hmm. talking about like regular people who want to help. Like mm-hmm. how, how would they go about helping? Like, do you even need help, first of all, I guess? I think right now, we'll need help later on. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're focusing on prototyping, sort mm-hmm. of optimizing the model for farming these larvae. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's more of a thing between you know the organization, uh, like us and our partner, Cadim, in the Congo. Yeah. 
But moving forward, we'll definitely need like sort of that financial help mm-hmm. as we have our I- ideal model and as we sp- we expand partnerships across Africa and across the world to sort of scale insect farming. Mm-hmm. Then we'll need financial support. But right now, it's more of a um, just an effort between us and our our NGO partner. Yeah, yeah. So when that time comes, please let us know. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm sure there are many people out there uh, mm-hmm. who would want to help. And you know, who knows? There might be people who want to take a trip out to the Congo and uh, do the work with you. Yeah, uh, that would be Maybe awesome. risk uh, getting malaria <laughs> with you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, who, who knows? Um, yeah, if if you ever need any help like that, uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure the community, I mean, people who listen to the podcast, um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure there are people out there who, who would want to help. So mm, Exactly. Yeah, so let's, let's get to the... Um, <laughs> actually... You know, like when you posted all those, like you're on like trains <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, let me ask you: Is it was it legal? I can't say if it was legal or not. <laughs> okay. Um, uh. Likely no. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But to me, it seemed not definitely not justifiable. But okay. it seemed less harmful than other things I could do because it wasn't causing other people harm. Like right, maybe right. it caused me harm. But okay, right. But well, what was like what? in your mind made you think hey like i, I should go climb this crane like, <laughs> actually um grew up very afraid of heights mm. um like a very sort of shy afraid kid mm-hmm. and i hated that i was mm. like i really want to bust out of my bubble of just mm. being afraid of a lot of different things i was very timid very afraid mm. and i just remember thinking you know what could i do that's just absolutely crazy that mm. would you know force me to challenge my fears and then I remember getting to Duke and exploring Durham and seeing this really tall construction crane. Mm. I was like, maybe if we climb that, that would, you know, sort of <laughs> sort of get me out of my fear of heights. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And just, I was like, you know, let's do it. And one night by myself, um, went and climbed the crane. Mm. Really scary experience, yeah, I will say. Yeah, like, sure. as I was climbing, um, like halfway up, the wind was pretty strong. Uh-huh. And it rained the night before, too. Not only was it slippery, slippery. Like the, cr- the crane was made out of steel, so it was like really slippery. Uh-huh. And I was wearing Vans, uh-huh. and uh, like the these worst very shoes. slippery shoes. Yeah, the worst <laughs> shoes you could wear to climb something. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, really slippery, uh-huh. and the wind was just like kind of wobbling the crane back and forth, uh-huh. and I was just scared, out, like out of my mind, yeah. like just because the heights, but also the fact I could fall off, get blown off, slip yeah. off, whatever. But I get to the top, and just that view of Durham. It's like a really beautiful city. Mm. Um, just having the, the, this really sort of picturesque view of view of Durham mm. was just breathtaking. Mm. I was like shivering because I was so afraid, but it was, at the same time, it was just remarkably beautiful. Mm. I remember climbing back down from that crane. Mm. It was just a, f- a flood of a feeling of accomplishment. Mm. I was like, you know, I was scared as hell, but I did it. Mm. Um, I faced my fears and I overcame it. Mm. And um, like now I don't climb cranes, <laughs> just yeah. f- full disclosure. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad to hear yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like a one time, like uh-huh. a little bit, a little while in my life, uh-huh. just to sort of get out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think I definitely learned a lesson, like just a meaningful life lesson. It just yeah. wasn't some reckless, right. some college boy just doing some reckless things. Yeah, I, I guess there in college there are way worse things you could do, in, <laughs> you know, in the name of self, like discovery mm. was, that, was that kind of the same idea for you i think you mentioned abandoned prisons oh yeah yeah i used to um it's called um urbex or urban exploring okay. and i used to explore like this these abandoned host like hotels abandoned colleges abandoned prisons uh-huh. etc and um 
dangerous at times. You don't meet the the best of people when you're exploring. Um, and you met people while you yeah, were yeah like, other uh, other explorers uh-huh. um, who aren't as kind as you would like them to be. Uh-huh. Um, and just there's a lot of hazards like you get stuck and you can like in a hole or something like these are really old buildings yeah like some things can collapse exactly and there's like all these weird sounds it's at night too and i was i'm I'm alone Uh with a flashlight and just a pocket knife and it's just Uh like (laughs) it's really scary (laughs) all around you yeah um and i was also scared out of my balls at that time Uh like um i'm looking back a lot of the legal things i did (laughs) i did because i was i was scared of them i hated Mm -hmm. being scared of those things Mm -hmm. so i'm like you know screw it let's let's face our fears Mm and come out as a better person mm. um but it was i actually learned a lot too like it was very uh interesting it, experience but what kind of people did you meet like how were they not kind people no there were um like uh people who also recognized that the activity they were doing was illegal and so they were uh, sort of you know very uh withdrawn very or very uh not welcoming right like, you know if you go to a restaurant you're like you're welcomed in you're like hey what would you like mm. you know how you're doing but when you meet people at abandoned prisons, they're like, "Get out of here! Right. I'm exploring. Don't want to, don't want to mingle with you and whatnot." Yeah. But um, nothing bad happened though. Never got hurt. Mm. Um, worst thing that happened was probably you know taking a little bit of asbestos here and there, but mm. it's all worth it, you know. <laughs> yeah. For the for the memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I will say this. Um, well, kind of circling back to the malaria thing, mm-hmm. like your parents are like freaking out obviously <laughs> right uh-huh. like i remember like my mom telling me because mm. like my mom our parents are friends right yeah. so like our, our, my parents heard from your parents you know? <laughs> and so yeah i remember like we were all like oh we gotta really pray for josh like mm. make sure he, he gets home safe <laughs> um so there there you, you gotta consider that right there mm. is the the fear i mean you say it wouldn't it's not harmful to other people, but mm-hmm. if something bad happens, you know, dang, that's a huge impact to your community. Exactly, yeah. and that's sort of uh, why I stopped doing all yeah, this, all this good. risky stuff. Mm-hmm. Just like out of respect for the people who do care for me. Yeah, like I might find it okay, but other people might not. But like even with malaria, even with everything mm-hmm. I put myself through, mm-hmm. like it's just that's those are the moments where I covered so many of my most meaningful life lessons. Mm-hmm. Like malaria, for example. Like I first I found it amusing, but. Mm-hmm and then it got serious but like even like despite the experience i went through like just the fact i can endure malaria and still be just still have that sort of resolute determination to sort of see yeah. my nonprofit through yeah sort of just show like revealed to me like the lengths i was willing to go to to mm. for my nonprofit. like if I, if I was willing to put my life on the line mm. then nothing will get in the way between me and my goals and so yeah and that, that that is that is awesome i think the impulse to kind of face your fears to overcome Mm -hmm. them isn't something that many people have and a lot of people you know live their entire lives Mm -hmm. with their fears never Mm -hmm. having overcome them so yeah i definitely commend you for for doing that and like the the drive to see your vision through with your uh ngo your nonprofit, um man that's awesome like you it's and it's not even the selfish thing like uh when we talked about Earlier in the podcast, when I was like, "Oh wait, is this proprietary knowledge? Like, are you allowed to share this?" When you said, "No, if like if more people find out about it and they can use it, that's great." So I, I think, yeah, that that's kind of in in this world that we live in now. Like, it's easy to be jaded by and like skeptical of people's intentions, mm. especially with you know like 
the bad forms of capitalism where mm. it's like money over everything kind mm. of mentality. Now, yeah, it's, it's easy to be jaded and skeptical of anything that anybody does. But the fact that you're kind of going at it with, I just want to make it available for people so that it can enrich their lives, better their lives. Mm. I think that's really commendable and admirable. So, yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, no wonder Duke gave you ten thousand dollars to go out <laughs> and do all this stuff. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, but appreciate it though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, um, oh, we're closing in in an hour. Um, and I think we're gonna wrap up. But um, any last thoughts that you wanted to share um with your experience or anything you wanted to let the people know about? I guess I'll, I'll just close with this: just whatever goal you have in mind, like. Business or not business, like no matter how crazy, no matter how out of the world it may seem, mm-hmm. just work towards a goal. Like mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of uncertainty, but just work towards a goal and have faith that things will work out. Even if you experience a lot of failures on the way, like the failures will like be sort of the springboard you learn your lessons from, mm-hmm. and those lessons will be the fuel for your success. Mm-hmm. And so just keep at it and, and work towards uh, outrageous goals and ambitions. That's yeah. all I have to say. That's awesome. That is really great. Thank you so much for being here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, wow, I learned a lot. I actually thought I was just going to learn about insects <laughs> and their benefits, but um, just, yeah, even about like how your, your outlook on life should be. I, I learned a lot today. So, so thank you so much. Um, thank you guys for listening out there. Um, I'm going to put up Josh's Instagram on, on the post on our Instagram. Um, so are you are you okay with people reaching out if they want to like connect with you regarding this? Yeah, for sure. I actually deleted my Instagram a while back. Oh, okay, but you okay. could just text me like two one six seven six seven three five nine eight. Like I'd be more than happy to talk anytime. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah. So if if you guys are interested in this kind of space and you want to connect with Josh, there you go. You got his number. Awesome. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, thanks, man.